you would open your Bibles this evening to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. We're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. We'll be looking at the second half of the third chapter. You may recall that at the opening portion of this chapter, Moses saw the burning bush and began to speak to the Lord. And now we hear the Lord's continued description of his plan for Israel and for Moses. Beginning at verse 10 of chapter 3, if you'd please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now... Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor... And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we ask that you would meet with us this evening, that by means of your word you would reach us, that you would grab a hold of our hearts, that you would make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
Well, on several occasions now, we have come together to learn more about what God has done and is even now preparing to do for those whom He loves. We began a few months ago looking at the book of Exodus together. Exodus is the story of God's great redemption of Israel from bondage and death in Egypt. Exodus is also a type of God's redemption of His people by the work of Jesus Christ. And so Exodus reveals much of how God relates to His people, how He redeems them, what He redeems them from, and to what end He redeems them. In the first chapter, we saw that God has a plan for His people in the midst of their suffering. Even when we believe we have been abandoned in our suffering, God is still faithful and His covenant remains with His people. Then we saw in the beginning of chapter 2 that God preserves His people by His providence and that God works His providence by means of His word and faith. In the most terrifying of times, when their very children were being murdered, God brings His word to the Israelites. And he gives faith to them. But we also observe that sometimes God's people are impatient. We can often ignore God's timing and strike out on our own. This is what happened to Moses in the end of chapter 2. Moses knew that God had designed him to redeem Israel, but he just couldn't begin to bring himself to wait for God's schedule. Moses was so eager to redeem Israel, Stephen tells us, in Acts chapter 7, that he took matters into his own hands and he killed an Egyptian who was striking a Hebrew. But the end of that was not exactly what Moses expected. Instead of instant redemption, Moses' act brought fear, flight, and 40 more years of waiting. But finally, in the beginning of the third chapter, we saw that even in that time of waiting, When Moses thought all was lost, when the Israelites cried out to God because they saw no end in sight to their bondage, God was at work. He did not forget his promises. He did not forget his covenantal plan. And most of all, he did not forget his people. And so this evening we come now to look at the Redeemer of Israel. Have you ever heard the saying, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it? If you have, then you know that's referring to our human propensity to be short-sighted in evaluating exactly what it will be for us to be satisfied. So often, we see only what we want and not what actually is. A good example of this is years ago, I had a friend in Buffalo, New York. And it was approaching Christmas time, and in a very unusual way for Buffalo, the grass was green. This is not what you expect in December in Buffalo, New York. And I remember my friend saying over and over again, oh, I wish it would snow. You've got to have a white Christmas. How can you have Christmas without snow? Now, I guess you can in Houston, but in Buffalo you can't. Well, it turned out that year my friend got his wish. It snowed for Christmas. Seven feet of snow. He wasn't prepared for what he was wishing for. Or maybe when you were younger, you wished for a pet. You couldn't wait to have a dog or a cat. And you thought this would be the best thing. You dreamed about all the fun you would have, how perfect it would be. 
And then the time came around when you actually got the animal, and you realized there was a lot of work to go along with a dog or a cat. It wasn't easy. You had to actually put in some work. This is sometimes the way that we approach life. We think we know what we need and what will be best. But the reality is different. That's a picture of what's happening in our text this morning. Moses thought he knew how God's people were to be redeemed. He also thought he knew what the Redeemer would look like. After all, he was a prince in the prime of his life with a hand ready to strike and a cause that was just. The only problem was he was wrong. God also knew what the Redeemer would look like. And now in our text, God tells Moses who the Redeemer is. In one sense, there are actually two Redeemers. One visible and one invisible. Today we will see that the visible Redeemer is indeed Moses. But more importantly, we'll see that the significant Redeemer, the essential Redeemer, is invisible. The Lord God. And we will also see that God the Redeemer is in complete control of redemption. He chooses the instrument. He chooses the plan. And most importantly, He chooses the result. So let's look first, beginning in verse 10, at the visible Redeemer. Our text picks up the narrative that goes before it. There is a clear connection. Come, I will send you, says God. Because I have heard the cries of my people from earlier in the chapter. I have seen their oppression and I am coming down to deliver them. It is because God has come down to deliver Israel that he has appointed a redeemer. A mediator, if you will, between God and Israel. And who will that be? It will be Moses. And this is the fulfillment of all of Moses' previous desires. It's also what Moses had previously expected. If you remember when we looked at Stephen's account of Moses' aborted attempt at redemption. In Acts chapter 7 verse 25, Stephen tells us that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Now this visible Redeemer is clearly important. God tells him that he is to bring God's own people. My people, God says in verse 10. Out of Egypt. Now think about the monumental task that this is. Think about how numerous the people of Israel are. We know now, from knowing the rest of the book of Exodus, how difficult a task it would be to keep the Israelites together. This is the task that God has called Moses to. And this is just one example of God's means of bringing salvation to his people through a visible redeemer. Think of Joseph and the way he delivered his brothers and their family out of the famine. Think of Paul. And the spread of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the known world. Think of how even in our day, evangelism happens. It is something that God uses people to bring about the expansion of his kingdom. 
So who is this Redeemer? What do we now know about Moses? The first thing we see is that he is humble. Look at what Moses says in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, just previously, Moses had thought himself more than worthy to bring Israel out of Egypt. He didn't even wait for God then. But now, 40 years later at 80, he's not so enthusiastic about this. Not as much as when he was 40. Now, is that just age? No, I think there's more than that. I think now the call of God upon his life is felt. It can't be ignored or manipulated. When God places his call upon our lives, it is not something we take lightly. It is sobering. We see and feel the responsibility. Now we also know that Moses had learned humility. He had been tending sheep for 40 years. This prince of Egypt was on the backside of a mountain tending the flocks of someone else for 40 years. And so he says to God, I am not worthy to do this task. Now, it seems to me that we often see this in Scripture. And actually, this kind of humility is often a good sign. We see over and over again God's servants saying to the Lord, I'm not worthy of this responsibility you want to give to me. I'm not up to this task. It is those who jump too quickly into leadership, those who think that they can handle everything that they're given, who have difficulties. We see this in the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, I am unworthy. I can't do this. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah says, I'm not worthy of this calling. It's a humility that comes with the call of God. Because God uses those who have their confidence in Him rather than themselves. The second thing we see about this Redeemer is that He is under the authority of God. Notice the language in verse 10. I will send. Notice the imperatives, the commands. Come, you may bring. God is giving commands to Moses. Moses must be obedient. But notice that the commands of God come after the promise of God. The promise of God we looked at previously in verses 8 and 9. God doesn't command Moses and expect him to act before he gets the promises. No, he lays out the promises first so that Moses can take comfort, take assurance in God's promises and actions so that he knows He has the ability to obey. How gracious is it of God to assure us of success even before he requires us to act? This is always God's way. One example of this in the New Testament is found in Mark chapter 8. First, our Lord Jesus tells his disciples of his death and the fact that he is the Christ And then after he has done that, he tells them to take up their cross daily. Do you see the importance of the sequencing there? If God had told them to take up their cross first, if God had told Moses to obey his commands first, there would be hopelessness that would set in. 
But knowing that God is for us, knowing that God has given us His promises, knowing that God is able, allows us to hear those commands and obey. Thirdly, I want you to notice that Moses, the visible Redeemer, is not alone, but he must rely on God alone. So against all of Moses' fears, God only offers himself. He says in verse 12, I will be with you. And actually this word at the beginning of this sentence, but, is often translated certainly or surely. Surely I will be with you. Moses makes an objection and he says, but don't worry about that. I will be with you. God gives him a sign. But that sign won't be seen until after Moses' obedience. He says, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, think about that sign for a moment. As we read that, we might think God is just addressing Moses. But the grammar of the you there is plural. In the old King James, it's ye shall serve on this mountain. Do you see what God is doing? He's saying, the sign that I will give you is, Moses, you will have led my people out, and they and you will serve on this mountain. What greater sign of success could God give Moses? The second thing we see here this evening is the invisible Redeemer. God is the Redeemer who chooses the instrument. God chose Moses, but God is the real Redeemer. The invisible one will be with and will be represented by the visible one, Moses. And so Moses is aware of this, and he asks for a way to represent to the Israelites that he's not alone, that God is with them. Now, is this not representative, reminiscent of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ? In Jesus, the invisible and the visible come together. Both the human and the divine Redeemer are evident. And yet, even his disciples believed that they needed evidence. Do you remember Philip's request to Jesus? Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And so Moses understands that man is naturally stubborn in sin. And he also knows that man can only know God by revelation. And therefore, he asks God to reveal to him his name. He says, whom shall I say has sent me? Now, remember, it's true, but especially true in the scripture, that there is much in a name. Names tell us about the character of someone. For just Two examples. Joshua means Jehovah saves. Peter means the rock. And so Moses asks, who shall I say has sent me? Who is this God? And God answers, I am who I am. This is the famous tetragrammaton. The four letters. Yahweh. Because in Hebrew, there are only consonant letters. Vowels are put in by markings near or on the consonants. And so the 
The name I am in Hebrew is, in English, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Now, the original pronunciation of this name has in some sense been lost for fear of breaking the third commandment, not speaking the Lord's name in vain. The Jews took this so seriously that they didn't want to say the name God for fear of taking it in vain. It's actually where we get Jehovah from. Jehovah takes the consonants of the name of God, Yahweh, and the vowels of another Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai, and puts them together to come up with Jehovah. It's sort of the safe way for the Jews to say Yahweh. To this day, you may know that Orthodox Jews write the word God, G blank D, because they are so afraid of taking the name of the Lord in vain. What is meant by this name is the self-existence of God. It highlights the fact that the idols are nothing because they are dependent upon man for their existence. God is not, I am who I am. No one creates the Lord. It tells us that God is unchangeable and constant. One of the ways that you could translate this name is, I will be that I will be. It is a timeless name. And Christ applies this name to himself in John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. So who is this God, the I am? God says to Moses, You shall tell them that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent you. Jehovah Elohim. Now notice that God does not leave off by just giving Moses one name. No, he understands that he must condescend to his people in order to be understood. And so he gives a further explanation of who he is. God also said this. The word there actually means again or besides. It is a repetition. And so God uses his covenantal name and reminds Israel of his covenant with them. He is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is the Lord God. And he also, if you'll see, points Moses to the future. He says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God's covenant is linked to redemption. Now, this is one of the reasons why church history is important. Not so that we can look back to the good old days of the church, but so that we can remember the mighty acts and faithfulness of God and be encouraged in the midst of our weakness. The second thing we see is that God not only chooses his instrument, he chooses the plan. Look at verse 16. He says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Now notice we have another imperative here to Moses. Go and gather. Now where is Moses to go? The interesting thing is that he is to go first to God's people and specifically to the elders. Why? Well, they are the God-given authority in Israel. 
And they are where Moses will find support to go before Pharaoh. Notice that you and the elders are to go to Pharaoh in verse 18. Moses is to go and to find support for his confrontation with Pharaoh. Now Moses is to go to the elders, and what is he to bring? He is to bring the word of God. Notice what form the word takes. First, it is the name of God, the Lord God. Next, it is the presence of God. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Now, observed here implies much more than a detached looking. Observed here means that God is with his people. It is often translated visited, that God has visited his people. And it describes a dwelling of God with his people. Moses is to give them the promise of God. We see this in verse 17. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Notice that Israel is called to trust God. And they're called to trust God contrary to their experience. I think sometimes we think it's easy for Bible people to trust God because God gives them promises that are easily grasped. Whereas we have difficulty trusting God because of our circumstances around us. Now, look at what the text says. I promise that I will take you up out of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now that sounds simple, doesn't it? But now imagine that you are an Israelite. What is your memory of the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites? It's not a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of famine and of death. It's why you were in Egypt to start with. Because you were facing death and famine in this land. That would be your experience, your understanding, the stories that would have been brought down to you. But God gives his promise. And his promise is that this is a land flowing with milk and honey. And he says, trust me. What this tells us is that we must never forget the promise of God. Even when it is contrary to our experience. Even when the circumstances are dark. Moses then has to obey the command of God in verse 18. God says, and they will listen to your voice. And you of the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him. Now, Moses is not excused from a difficult task. After he goes to the elders, he must go to Pharaoh. Now, stop for a moment and think about how frightening that would be to Moses. The last time that Moses was in Egypt, he was fleeing for his life because Pharaoh was going to kill him. And now God is asking him to do the one thing that he would most rather not do. Have you ever felt that way? That God has asked you, commanded you in his word to do something that you want no part of? That you think will have no success? That you are afraid of undertaking? Now this message that God gives to Moses isn't exactly tailored to make Pharaoh happy. It comes completely out of the blue. 
Moses is to say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now let us go out three days' journey. This word, has met, carries a sudden, unexpected connotation. It just happened. It's like a calamity. God is completely in charge of the plan. The third thing we see about this invisible Redeemer is that God chooses the result. We see this in verses 19 through 22. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God lays it out for Moses. Without God, the plan that he has cannot succeed. It will take the mighty hand of God for God's plan to succeed. But even more than that, God tells Moses that he will not succeed on his own. God tells him a preview of what he's going to see. He says, I am sure that Pharaoh will not let you go. Think about that for a moment. God tells Moses, I want you to do this, and I know what you're going to do will fail. Why would God say this? It's because God wants Moses to rely on him. He wants Moses to see that it is God's power that will win the day. That it is God's strong and mighty arm that will set his people free. Because with God, the result is not only possible, but it is sure. Look at verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. You see, God says, when his hand is in it, the victory is sure. God will have all of the glory from this result. His wonders are the wonders that are shown. And God will bring about a result that is beyond Israel's greatest expectations. God will strike down Egypt, but Israel will not suffer for this. The Israelites will find favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And they will be blessed and plunder the Egyptians. So this evening, are you discouraged or hesitant? Remember that Moses was too. The one that was ready to take on the Egyptian world is the same one who after that adversity said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And yet God not only perseveres with Moses, he encourages him. God gives grace to the humble. The presence of God, I will certainly be with you, puts strength into the weak and the foolish. Take courage, for the promise is to you as well. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. The end of this chapter is a source of hope for the Christian. Do you really believe that your Redeemer could turn the hearts of your enemies towards you? Could terrorists shower gifts upon the people of God? Is a Paul possible today? We need to know that the I am has not changed. Let's pray.